Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRP classics. I'm Kasia. Once again, I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Dun Huang, written by Yasushi Inoue and translated from Japanese by Jean Odo Moy. It was originally published in 1959. More than a thousand years ago, an extraordinary trove of early Buddhist sutras and other scriptures was secreted away in caves near the Silk Road city of Dun Huang. But who hid this magnificent treasure and why? In this novel, the great modern Japanese writer Yasushi Inoue tells the story of Chao Sing Te, a young Chinese man whose accidental failure to take the all-important exam that will qualify him as a high government official leads to a chance encounter that draws him farther and farther into the wild and contested lands west of the Chinese empire. Here he finds love, distinguishes himself in battle, and ultimately devotes himself to the strange task of depositing the scrolls in the caves where, many centuries later, they will be rediscovered. And this is based on a true place, a true historical mystery as to how these scrolls, many of them like classic Buddhist texts, but also I think medical documents... Mm -hmm political documents, all kinds of stuff was hidden Yeah, and eventually found. Yeah. Well, we have no guests this week. Shocking. It's just you and I. Our first no-guested episode in a while, which is appropriate for this book because it's about unburied scrolls. Yeah. It's it's inherently, a we're doing an unburied books and about an unburied book talking about unburied books. Mm-hmm. It's unburied books inception. Oh, I hate that metaphor. I know. But Christopher Nolan is not safe on this podcast. No, he's not. No. I will say, I or think anywhere. it's interesting that this is our first solo episode since Chess Story, because I think this is my favorite book since Chess Story. Oh, bold statement. I, I'm going to write it and die hard for this book. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing how that goes. What do you think? I liked it. I, I read it in one sitting, which I pretty much never do for the podcast. I always like meet it out 50 pages a day mm-hmm. so i would have read this in i think four days but i read it in one sitting was there a reason why you decided to keep going in the one city it just felt very sustaining like plot yeah. story it's an exciting book to read which you may not think based on what it's about because it's not about it's not about the texts really no. it's and it's not about what happens after the texts are discovered the, the texts are almost like a red herring to tell this other story, which yeah. is all about like the political environment that leads to the necessity of these being hidden. Yeah. And it's not the most like flowery prose. It's not like a, no, not we're going to throw a new twist into the story every single page. It's just sort of, it sort of lulls you into this state of almost like Xing Tei, our, our lead character, is sort of very complacent in his life. Uh, after this sort of switch at the beginning where he's just like, oh, if I die, I die. If I starve to death on this road, I starve to death on this road. If I die in this battle, I die in this battle. And I feel almost like that, just like, well, I guess I just read the next page. Well, I'll read the next page. And, until you and I become complacent until the book's done and I'm like tears are in my eyes or something. <laughs> well, yeah. And the book begins with a, a dream or with falling asleep. Yes. And, it, and it kind of returns to that near the end. And it does have the feeling of like an afternoon nap, not in a bad way as like, this is boring, I'm tired, but just like a comfortable state. Exactly. That's that's the perfect way to put it. That you journey into. 100%. And you're reluctant to get up from. Oh, 
God, this was the hardest afternoon nap to wake up from. Okay, well, let's talk about the author. Uh-huh. He is one of the most popular Japanese writers of the 20th century, which I didn't really know yeah. how popular he was. And strangely untranslated or minimally yeah. promoted translations. Yeah, and this seems to be sort of a minor work is maybe a little bit of a harsh statement for it. But like, I was looking at his list and there seemed to be like 5, 10, 15 more popular books that he had written over this one at least. So I, th- I thought it was interesting that NYRB chose this one sort of in his catalog. It's probably yeah. because of rights issues or this or that. There's probably a lot of logistical parts to that, but I, I, I think it's fascinating that it picked this one. Yeah, that is interesting. Okay, so Yasushi Inoue, he was born in Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost island, the eldest child of an army medical officer. After a youth devoted to poetry and judo, my two favorite things, Inoue <laughs> sat unsuccessfully for the entrance exam at a fancy medical school. He went on to study philosophy and literature And I think you see there maybe some of the autobiographical inspiration Mm. for the setup to this book, which involves somebody who's supposed to take an important examination, but but doesn't end up doing that, and then goes on to have this adventure. Yeah. And whose life is defined by their failure to do what is expected of them and what they have been prepared for. And this is someone who was raised by a medical officer and failed to get into medical school. Yeah. So it, this book is like, in a way, maybe a justification for his life. If I'm not reaching too much there. <laughs> do you find you relate to that at all? Uh, I think we all do. Yeah. I think we all do. In 1935, he became an arts reporter for the Osaka edition of the Menishi News. Following the Second World War, during which he briefly served in northern China. That's important. Yep. He published two short novels, one of which became um, prize-winning. In the 50s, he resigned from the newspaper and devoted himself to literature, becoming a best-selling and tremendously prolific author in multiple genres. In 1976, the Emperor of Japan presented him with the Order of Culture, the highest honor granted for artistic merit in Japan. (laughs) But so this belongs to his forays into historical fiction. Yes. And though he is Japanese, it is set in China and a remote portion of China. And I suppose his interest in Chinese history was born during the time that he was there, stationed there during the war. Yeah. I I do think it's interesting I did, couldn't remember if this book was a Chinese book or a Japanese book when we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. I would, ex- and it's probably some sort of American bias that, like, if someone is writing from a country, they're writing about their own country. Sure. It was really nice to have a book written by one nation about another nation entirely. Not even about a Japanese person in China, just China. I thought that was a really fascinating angle to, for, a, for an unburied NYRB to have. Yeah, sure. Because this is a book about a border region mm-hmm. that's experiencing a lot of strife. And historically, China and Japan, although they're lumped together often. Oh, they... I took, like, I literally took a class in college that was like the politics of China and Japan. Yeah. And I remember the first time I went to China, 
during that same trip was also the first time I went to Japan. And I was like, oh, these two places are completely dead. Like they're diametrically opposed in pretty much every way. Yeah, including politically. Starting with the geography of like here you have this massive country where people can like spread out. And then you have this tiny like island nation, most of which is uninhabitable. Yeah. And people have to like be as small as possible. Yeah. So, yes, very interesting. And also because it deals with translation. And the translator, is they have a little bit of a biographical detail in the translator here. She was born in Washington State, but moved to Japan shortly before the outbreak of World War II. Wow. So instead of coming from Japan to the U.S. and then being a translator, she went the other way around. Yeah, right at the time where America and Before Japan the war. <laughs> were, you know, going to be locked in a massive conflict. Yeah, yeah. So... A lot of interesting border crossings here, which have a special resonance for the story. Also, did you read the introduction? Yeah. Her, she, this same translator also translated some of his, I think, more like memoirs or Mm -hmm. books about his childhood, which he had a strange childhood situation, was raised by his father's mistress or something incredible stuff some and it so yeah in the same town with his actual like grandparents but didn't live with his own blood relatives yeah because if he lived with this person they were able to be cared for and accepted by the community mm-hmm. but still at an arm's length like i would just really oh, like 100%. to read those those books I think another interesting border crossing is uh, Werner Foreman, who provides the picture Ooh. on the cover of the book. Bobby, stop it. Why do they always do this during a podcast? It's fine. They just do it all the time. It doesn't matter. Werner Foreman is a, I believe, Czech uh, photographer. And his specialty was not necessarily the artistic interpretation of a scene, but the very realistic uh, documentation of one. He specifically Mm. documented ancient civilizations and quite Mm. often ones that weren't in his native area. Mm. He liked to go across the world to be able to Mm. document it. And so this is a picture of the stronghold city of Tanhuang. And I think it says the Western Gate outside the Mogawo Caves um, in the Gansu province, which is where Tanhuang is located. So this is inherently its own sort of history preserving story of its own to be put on the cover. So I think it, it, it works perfectly with the book in this way. I was intrigued by the idea that if you look up Don Huang online, you can see the inside of the caves. There's yeah. photos of the scrolls piled up inside and the incredible paintings that are in there. But they didn't choose the very literal photo that they could have chosen. Yeah. They chose this like more military fortressy imposing outer thing yeah um which because a surprising amount of time in this book is spent in the military <laughs> pretty much all of it. <laughs> <laughs> i remember seeing like some reviews online of people just being like didn't like the book it was just all about battles okay yeah we have to talk about the fact that no one talks about this book it, why doesn't anyone talk about this no book? like it really doesn't seem like any major reviews were written about it. We don't have an LRB. No, people uh, people have contacted us through email or on social media about maybe half of the NYRB classics yeah. at one point or another. And I don't think anybody's ever mentioned this. And there's maybe like 
two pretty negative blog reviews from like 2007 (laughs) written about it. And I completely disagree with everything that people said in those reviews. Every single word they use, I would disagree. They were just like, this book is boring. And I was like, what? (laughs) Did we read the same book though? It was melodramatic and unbelievable. I also think part of that is maybe they don't have a huge exposure to literature from these countries. Sure. Because there's a tonal thing happening here where there can be moments of extreme violence Mm -hmm. and then it can just sort of move on in a way that I don't see in Western literature quite as much. Interesting. But eh. we did not prepare normal questions no. Because we have no one to question. Yeah, no. But we are trying to challenge one another. We each have a handful of discussion topics. topics. So should I start or should you? You can start. Okay. You wrote, you wrote more than I did. You, of course, you always go above and beyond. Typical, typical. So I wanted, the first idea that I wanted to discuss was him falling asleep. Yes. Uh, in the courtyard outside of where he's supposed to take his exam Mm -hmm. and his whole life being ruined by this ruined maybe the version of him just before this happened would have questioned why did i spend i think he's like in his early 30s yeah it's like why have i spent my whole life preparing for this exam and then i just blew it yeah just because i fell asleep because it was a beautiful day and the sun just got to me and i just kind of drifted away yeah I thought that was a curious sort of critique of scholarship of we all know from like our shitty world history that we had in high school, how important the exams are yeah. in Asian cultures, uh-huh. like an, a, a more heightened aspect of things that we have in our own phony meritocracy Yeah, that people like fetishize yeah, from the West about the East. There's also a, a tradition of satirizing yeah. the the bureaucratic officials or the the scholar culture, like the the novel, the scholars. So what what did what did you think he was kind of saying about scholarship? Because we we never really encounter bureaucrats again. Not in a major way. He kind of runs into a couple in the in the army, but there's there's it's, the bureaucrats are much more like hardy military commanders Mm -hmm. it's not the bureaucrat in the way we would think of them Mm -hmm. but then he also gets set off on this pursuit of true groundbreaking scholarship yes of translating what in in the city where he is in a central part of the country is a totally unknown language the quote-unquote scholars there don't even know of its existence. They can't confirm whether it's there or not. And it's only until he travels to the to that there himself and gets firsthand knowledge and experience that he discovers that, like, oh, yeah, of course, they have a language. Mm-hmm. You didn't know that? <laughs> I, I want to talk about the dream because I think the dream is interesting where he falls asleep and basically dreams that he takes the exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of goes into the room and he starts talking about like, oh, of course, this with the battle, of course, this with the army, of course, this with the finances, like, you must do this, you must do that. And then as he starts talking about like how to run a military, like a bunch of military men out of nowhere show up and like charge him mm-hmm. to kill him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this like rush of like, you know, the real world is coming for this man who is sort of mm-hmm. stuck in this bureaucratic fake world. Mm-hmm. Inherently, that's what his life comes to 
after this, he's almost always just getting charged by people and trying to be killed. <laughs> and just kind of happens not to be. One of my favorite parts of the book is where it describes him like for like a chapter just going into this battle and his horse rides out and he almost immediately faints. He gets shot with arrows and his horse just returns and he's brought back and they like take they like they like uh mend his wounds and stuff and then they like send him out into battle again. He faints almost immediately. He stays on his horse, he gets shot with arrows and he comes back and then they're like, Oh, we'll tend to your wounds. And he just keeps on like, oh, he didn't really experience the battle, he didn't really get he, he got hurt, but like it wasn't in val- valor and he doesn't die. Well, yeah, that's funny because the bat the description that we read earlier said that he distinguishes himself in battle, but there's a really funny moment where they say he sur- he managed to survive the three battles. In two, he fainted, and in one, he was wounded. <laughs> but he lived. Such a good line. But yeah, the going back to the dream. The dream is a really... I don't know. What do you think of dreams in books? Because I feel like they've become looked down upon, mm. uh, like seen as a lazy device. I think with anything, if you do it well, it's great. If you do it poorly, it's poor. Yeah. Okay, sure. And I think this was great. I thought it was really good. It did what it needed to do, which was provide the exposition for what's going on in this Western portion of China at this time. We have a growing power and we have a government that's unsure, that's insecure, but also complacent mm-hmm. and doesn't know how to respond. Yeah. And he gives an answer and then later he comes to have a different answer. Yeah. Informed by real life rather than book learning. Do you, there was, I was thinking, and this is my own Western uh, knowledge bias coming into it. Did he kind of feel like a Vonnegut character to you in a way? How so? Do you think of like, uh, just oh. sort of a guy that's just sort of drifting through. He doesn't have a lot of agency and he doesn't seem to want a lot of agency. Interesting. I'm now thinking about this. Like, what Vonnegut book are you thinking about? Mainly Slaughterhouse-Five. I see the Slaughterhouse-Five in terms of, like, I'm in this very, like, martial context that I probably shouldn't be in. At the same time, he doesn't really resist it. And I'm not fighting. I'm just hiding underground and, like, everything's being destroyed around me. Why Mm -hmm. am I here? This is, like, terrible. Although he's not nearly as tormented as Vonnegut. No. He's like, um, he, the, the, that's another aspect of the book I want to discuss, is this man has the healthiest mind of any person that ever lived. <laughs> or, or the most unhealthy. Or, or he's just totally oblivious, but like, I wish I could think like this person. <laughs> what, what do you wish you could think like him as? So this comes into my, my next point, okay? Okay. Which is his character motives and how they change on a freaking dime. Yeah. So he goes from spending 30 years of his life preparing for an exam... <laughs> To literally, he's like, well, guess I missed the exam. I'll go into town, see what's happening there. He sees a woman who, who's a crazy from part. this part, this this Western province of China that he's just dreamt about in the fake exam that he took in his dream. And this barbarian guy is trying to sell her for pieces, literally. He's going to butcher her. Do you want, he's portion. like, do you want the ear? Do you want the nose? He's like, I'll the- buy her. I'll buy her. Whatever we can do to save her. He's like, no, 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 no. I only sell the pieces. He's <laughs> like, but I'll pay you whatever you want. And the woman doesn't want to be sold as, she doesn't want to be a sex slave yeah. is the implication. And he's like, no, no, I want to give you your freedom. So fine, like this, what should be obvious, she has to really prove to them that this is really what he wants. And she, as a, as a gesture of gratitude, gives him... A, a document which she herself doesn't know 
what it really means. Mm-hmm. I guess she doesn't read. And um, she says it, she thinks it's her like birth. She name. thinks it's maybe like a passport or his identity document. And it's written in a, a text, a script that he, he has never seen before. And that's the language of, I think it's pronounced Shisha. Shisha. Yeah. And that on the note of pronunciation, mm-hmm. one of the maybe unfortunate things about the book is that it has an outdated transliteration of Chinese. <laughs> oh. And the title. Maybe another reason the book suffers is that it it is not the current Dun Huang. That yeah. it, it, so the SEO on this book is screwed. Yeah. It's like, what is that? Yeah. You might not recognize, like connect it with the thing, even mm-hmm. if you knew what the thing was. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can also talk about the uh, the use of the term weaker. Yes. Yes. In the book. There is a, a, a pretty important character that is a Uyghur princess. Mm-hmm. But it's not the Uyghurs that we talk about today. No. Different people. The barbarian at the beginning is a Uyghur as well. But a, the not the kind we would know. Once again, like... Yeah. And I think at first when I was reading this, it felt a little uncomfortable knowing what's happening in with the Uyghurs uh-huh. in China today. That it was like this sort of barbarian oh, culture right, representation. Right, right. And I, ha- I was like, I have to remove myself. This is from a Japanese writer writing about like an ancient time period. But then, like you said, you told me that, like, when you started researching it, you were like, oh, that's not the Uyghurs. Yeah. And I felt a little bit better. <laughs> well, it just speaks to the nature of translation as an ongoing process. The nature of The just nature of cultural transition. change. The nature of, yeah, interaction. Like, there isn't an end point to be reached. No. And the book the book suffers from that, but it also preserves it. Yeah. In a... In a cave yeah from from outside influence but for but good he, and for ill he frees this uh shishia woman and then he goes off to battle well hold on hold on so he really his new his new desire instead of Let's trying to su- succeed is well now my desire is to learn this language yes to solve this mystery mm-hmm. of this document that i've been given and it's a very dangerous journey from where he is to this part of China. Yeah. Like that's really freaking long journey to take in the year 1030 or one 1026 yes. when the book begins. And I liked this line where someone's like, what are you doing? You're, you're going to die. Like you could be killed. And he said, if I were afraid of losing my head, I couldn't do anything. And that continues throughout the whole thing. He's completely unbothered. What What is, what is, more opposite to like an academic life than being in the front lines of a military conflict. Yeah. And yet he accepts it with total openness and without fear. Without fear, without like grandeur. Yeah. Just yeah, no yeah, positive yeah. He, negative. He doesn't he's just have like, very much ego. He's just like, I, I guess like this is, you know, where I, this is where I gotta be. He's, he's interested in doing things, but he's not a man of action. Yeah. But he takes action, almost more decisive action than the than the quote unquote man of action. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. I don't like know how to categorize him. Well, I want to talk through a little bit more of the book's plot and plot his um Okay, okay. Hit me. So then he gets to this far off region where Dun Huang is and he meets a military commander named Wang Li who we love him. Instantly hit hit character of the book. <laughs> and Wang Li sort of takes Chiang Te under his wing and 
uh, is just like, you're going to fight in battle with me. We will die together. And Jingdei is just like, yeah, that's that's fair. Probably will. And then he immediately becomes a soldier. And then during a raid, he uh, finds a Uyghur princess. We mentioned this person already. Mm-hmm. Somewhat kidnaps her. And... Um, well, he, he's trying to save her Save life. her. Yeah. And he brings her back and then immediately falls in love with her. Shock. It wasn't immediate. I liked the progression. I did too. It I'm, was compressed. A, I'll give you that. I'm being a little uh, jokey okay. about yeah. it. And now immediately his intentions have shifted from scholarly to translation to military to now romance. And then he then... then he decides to leave her and he's like, I'll be back in one year exactly. Well, no, he gets sent. The 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 commander discovers that he's not just a common shoulder soldier, he's actually well educated, he can read and write. And yes. Wang Li cannot. And it becomes of great military significance to that's, be able to read right. this script. And so they send him away to the like center city of this emerging language. Mm-hmm. That everyone else has said they're not a real culture. They don't have a language. They don't. They don't matter. Don't worry about them. And he can study the language now. And now he's the one. He's studying it. And so he goes there. He goes back to translation, but for a different reason, for a military purpose. And he's he's basically forced to leave the girl behind. Yeah. But while there, and this is another interesting part, is like he kind of forgets the girl. She she <laughs> she's really terrified as you can imagine if you were like the last of a dying breed yeah. like s- surrounded by the enemy, reliant upon the enemy. One of the only women in a very male area. She's like, "Please, you're going to come back in a year, you're going to come back in a year." Well, he stays there for over a year. He stays there for like 2 years. Yeah. And then He's just like I really had to get these words. I he, couldn't figure out these few words. The book tracks his psychology as like really being ambivalent about whether he should hurry back or not. Yeah. And then he finally decides that maybe he will do it, mm-hmm. which seemed very realistic in a way that books generally are not. Yeah. Even books that really care about being realistic. Mm-hmm. And he gets back and... And she has been taken as a concubine. Well, at first he's told that she died. Well, yeah, I didn't believe that that was true. I thought that was an obvious lie. Oh, I was I was brokenhearted. Well, for we, don't have, we, don't, we don't have to get too granular. Sure. In our detailing of the plot. It goes on like this a bit. Well, then near the end, when he's reflecting on the many changes that his life's taken, he and the introduction writer, Damien Searles, points to this portion of the book as well. And I wanted to read from it if I can find it. He mused over what had brought him here, but he could think of no undue pressures on him, nor any strong influence other than his own free choice. Just as water flows from higher to lower levels, he too had merely followed the natural course of events. Which is a very strange inversion of a metaphor for determinism, but mm. then flipping on its head and making it about a freedom. Yeah. What did you think of that? Once again, I just thought it was such a unique character to have someone both exercise so much free reign in their own story yeah. Oh, he surrenders to the forces that he's surrounded by. He he dissolves into the community, but he still retains his sense of self and his own values. Yeah. But he's changing. His values always change. He's change he's he's always changing, but he's also never changing. Yeah. It's it's very like zen. It's it's kind of wild. Yeah. And he becomes interested in Buddhism later in the book. 
Yeah. So maybe it's no mistake that he achieves this kind of balance of between opposites. And I think it's sort of this, one of the key things I wrote down was sort of the duality of the book between this person that is a scholar, a warrior. There's also a duality mm-hmm. of like what happens in the book. There's a dream in the very beginning and a dream at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, two women sort of set him down this path. And I think they each sort of complement and contrast each other as well. Um, two women. The oh, the first woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's going to be sold piecemeal. And then the woman that's like, and that, those are two very different women. One is uh, a commoner that can't read that is, being sold on the market another one's a, a princess of a high castle that's you know being stormed and both of them bring this romantic adventurous side out of him and i liked the way that this book played with duality where it allowed certain things to bring something up and uh, the same thing to bring something back mm. the book's philosophy of translation uh-huh. he compiles a dictionary and it's interesting the the words that they choose to accentuate. Uh, he kind of views words as like these bundles of ideas. Mm-hmm. Almost of, like an organism. It's sort of evolving and alive. When Singta began the dictionary, he lost himself in his work. There were over 6,000 Sha Sha characters. The inventor of the writing system had been Chinese, but he had died. If he had still been alive, selecting the proper Chinese character for each Xiaoxia word would have been easy. But since the originator was dead, it was very difficult to choose the proper Chinese character from the countless others with similar meanings. And also in this city at the time, it's this rival power trying to differentiate itself. Yeah. And so even though he's Chinese... And the creator of this other language that isn't Chinese, was Chinese. He's like working off of his own knowledge and projecting onto this other language, trying to solve this puzzle. And Chinese modes of dress, Chinese like rituals are being forbidden Mm -hmm. here to try to encourage people to exist according to a certain like vision. There's just a tremendous confusion of goals Mm -hmm. in the world that he's in. He's in a blurred line of these two collided worlds. Yes. And, but it's like, it's not just one blurred line. It's like 20 (laughs) overlapping. And then there's these other people crossing through and there's talk of Muslim populations Mm -hmm. like further to the West and what like effect that may have down the road. And it's hard for him to know why he's doing what he's doing. He's not translating according to any particular ideal ideology. And I think that's really important to think about, even in like our own day and age. Like this is a book in translation and thinking about the ways that translation like opens up the world, but also the way that like it's a form of closure as well. Mm-hmm. It is sort of a zero-sum game of like, well, who's the one translating it? Who's paying for it? Why did you pick that versus this? Like, why did you pick that and not something else? Yeah. Like, what what messages are deemed, like, worthy of being able to cross a boundary? But the book focuses on this exciting story. It doesn't really meditate on all these things, but there's a lot of complexity underneath the surface of, a, like, a pretty simple adventure story. But also it doesn't 
only focused on this adventure story. It, it takes every battle and every plight just very matter-of-factly. It's, it's just such a hard book to get it, an exact read on because it's just sort of little droplets here and there that form, a, form an ocean. Mm-hmm. What is your next topic? The worth of art and the worth of preservation, the material goods. This was one of mine. Yeah, we, we did overlap on this. Okay. The book sort of begins to come to a climax as the battles draw nearer and nearer to this stronghold, fortress, city that holds a lot of the scroll, these sacred scrolls that... But it takes a long time to get there. It does take a very long time to get there. I mean, the thing is, the shadow of the scrolls is there the whole time. Because when he he works on the dictionary, and then he sees later there's this kind of magical moment where he's been away from the city for a while, and he's represented with his dictionary, which has been bound, and people have copies, and he's kind of like, wow, my, my work has made an impact on the world. And he's asked to title it, and does he call it Pearl in the Palm? Something like that. I can't yeah. remember specifically. Pearl in the Palm. <laughs> so it's like... something to be treasured, something special that is hidden, like a pearl, Mm -hmm. in an inconspicuous container, but takes great, great time and like meditation in order to become what it is. Yeah. He, he, the reason he goes there is to sort of compile this team of, of helpers in order to translate some things that, uh, like a governor of this town who's terrified and like kind of bumbling and has no idea how to handle the fact that his city is about to be taken over. Yeah. And that's a common, common theme, which is just like the people in power having, being completely without a plan. They're running around with their heads on fire. For what to do. And he, but, but there's also like shades of difference between him and the, the way, like the way he responds and the way the other people respond. All of them are kind of failing. I also think there is this aspect where he inherently ties material goods to the different people that he meets, that he cares about. Yeah, um, yeah. I there's these about military that. documents that are tied to Wang Lee. There's these... The there's necklace. The necklace of the Uyghur princess, as well as he really attaches the scrolls to the Uyghur princess as well. We should talk oh, about yeah. We should talk about what happens to the Uyghur princess because he returns... Well, I don't want to spoil it. There's a great image associated with her. I cannot... That is probably the strongest image in the book. That I've ever read in any book. Yeah. He's doing some translation for this governor dude. And I, I kind of like thought, are these the scrolls? Because I think he's playing with our expectations of what, when we might come across the scrolls. Yeah. But those are gone. Mm-hmm. Those are not the scrolls that are saved. No. The project that's really important to him that he's working on ends up being, I believe, lost, if I read it correctly. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it, it ends up being a totally different trove that is introduced very, very late, like much later. Yeah. So there's there's something going on there, <laughs> right? And and as you said, he associates the princess with the scrolls. He's he's doing this work, although he's not really connected to its actual practi- practical purpose anymore. He feels like it's a spiritual exercise for him to complete this in honor of her. Yeah. And for himself, to give himself meaning and purpose in this really uncertain situation, violently uncertain. 
situation because there's I, I lost count of how many times in this book this guy thinks he's gonna die oh he and wangley both are always just like oh I'll probably die tomorrow and i i, I always was kind of like well i don't think ching t will die just yet but i, I was always like well maybe this is t- the time for, for yeah it's, it's a totally open it's like who who knows how long one of these guys is gonna be around and it just keeps going every time he's like we die tomorrow brother i have a i have a reading for that okay one of the things that bonds Wang Li and Singta. Singta? Singta? Singta. It's Te, not Te. It's not Te. I keep fucking it up. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to this man. I love you so much. You are my hero. You literally texted me that you love this person. I do love him. They have a plan. They have a or an oath between them, which is that they will build a monument. I love them talking about the monument. And I want to talk about the significance of the monument, but first I'm just going to read the, the first time that this is introduced. Please. And again, it's important to know that the thing that brings them together is the fact that our main character can write and Wang Li cannot. Mm-hmm. So Wang Li continued, I'm thinking of building a monument for our unit. If we win the next battle, I'll let you write the epitaph. Where do you plan to build it? Who can tell? I don't know yet. Perhaps in the middle of the desert or in some village in Kancho. If we win but lose most of the men in battle, we'll build a monument on that spot. What if we should die? Who? You mean me? Wang Li's characteristically sharp eyes glittered. Even I may die. Build a monument even if I die. And what if I die? (laughs) It would complicate things. Try your best to survive. But you might be killed at that. Everyone who has talked with me on the night before a battle has been killed. Yes, you may die. <laughs> <laughs> this so was... that, that is really representative of the way that violence is treated with a, a sense of humor. And there's a real, like, I'm telling a tale this kind whole of feeling here. This was very funny. Very it calm, is funny. but very funny. When he asked whether the writing on the monument should be in Chinese or Xia Xia, Wang Li roared, Stupid! Naturally, Chinese must be used on the monument. We are not Xia Xia. The Ha Xia language is just good for reading orders. That's all. <laughs> and I like that. It's like, well, what is this language good for? What is mm. knowing it good for? Because you can really use that skill set for anything good, bad, neutral. The moral ambiguity of action, of scholarship, of soldiering, of leading is all at play here. Mm. I think there's something to be said here about why why build a monument? Like, because a monument serves the same purpose of preservation of memory and yeah. objects that you were talking about. Like, a book is not the knowledge. It's like a monument to the knowledge. Whereas the monument is a monument to the valor of the men who, who died yeah. on that spot. And at some point, the monument will turn into an Ozymandias sort of... Exactly. So let me read that line about the material goods. Please. This is when he decides, while everything's literally burning around him, (laughs) people are dying, lives are being lost left and right, assassination plots are brewing, so much is going on. He says, he couldn't rescue anything else, but it might be possible to save the sacred works. Mm Mm-hmm. Material goods, life, and political power belong to those who possess them. But the sutras were different. They belonged to no one. 
It was enough that they should not disappear in flames, that they should just continue to exist. The mere fact that they survived was a value in itself. It was so beautiful. And that is the closest thing to the most succinct like thesis statement of the book. That's a great point. That it gets to. Because he becomes interested in eternal things. Like through this journey, it's a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. And he himself doesn't really belong to any one thing. So he's inherently related to these scrolls in a way. And he loses his mooring. He doesn't know. There, there are certain points where he doesn't know if he should return back to the China of his birth, of the China of his upbringing, or whether he should stay in this border region, which really belongs to no one, actually belongs to a new person every week, depending on, you know, how many guys died yesterday. Yeah. And he kind of, well, who am I if I'm not from there? Mm-hmm. And who am I if the place that I live now is somebody else's tomorrow? Yeah. And when you don't have any of those things to latch on to, what else do you turn to but eternity? Wow. Wow. She got there. I want to go back a little bit. I'm going to back up just a tiny bit to get to one of my points, which was I think I realized how much love is in this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the relationship... Love and trust. But there's the romantic love between... uh, Ching Te and the Uyghur princess. There's a French... the Uyghur princess and everyone who looks at this princess. Oh, every, everyone that looks at her is like. <laughs> There's also this friendship love between Wang Li and Ching Te that I think is maybe one of my favorite aspects it's of the good. book. There's also a love between a soldier and his nation or his commander. And there's a part of the book where this commander sort of comes by and walks by a roll of soldiers. And every soldier he just sort of looks to it just gives a little Oh, that scene is so funny. A little good. head nod too. And every time he gives a head nod, that soldier is like, I will die. I it's will a, immediately die for you. Very funny representation of charisma. Yeah. You know, there's there's that national or cultural love also that Ching Te has for language. He has this love of learning. Um every everyone has like this this connection to a different point of love that mm-hmm. is connecting them via love. And I think that's in, but let, let, let's go to, let me, let me bring you to Kwong. Okay, take me to Kwong. Kwong loves a necklace. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Let's talk about the he necklace. He likes shiny things. So you, you at the end was like, Kwong's my boy. And I'm like, Kwong's the worst. And you're like, that's why he's my boy. Well, he is the perfect opposite and therefore pairing for Sing Tae because he's turning... He's on this path of like... Who's Kwong? Who's Kwong? Kwong is a traitor. He is a man who apparently has royal blood. I don't know if he made that up. He just... He, every time he's, he's on like, screen, hey, he's like... I'm royalty. Just so you guys know, I'm royalty. And he's got a bunch of men and a bunch of camels, but he's p- part traitor, part maybe highwayman if the moment demands it. Mm-hmm. Part ruler <laughs> if he wants to be. Part... Part, yeah. If, if he wants to be King believed, he's throne. a he, he has a ruling background. Yeah, I don't know about that, but he <laughs> he only cares about these superficial items. He doesn't care about like a monument isn't about what it is; it's about what it signifies. the The sutra isn't about it's the, the scroll is matters not because anything about it, but because it survived. The scroll is inherently it's an worthless. an artifact. 
but it, for eternity, it's priceless. Yes. In the moment, it's completely worthless. And it, therefore, it, it, you cannot live on a scroll. No. You cannot feed your children with a scroll. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fight the the invading army with a scroll. Someone please do an illustration of someone trying to feed a family with a scroll. Kuang is the opposite, but he also he has a lot in common with Singto in that he doesn't belong to anybody. Yeah. And he's just wandering through. And there's some great images of him with his flag <laughs> just bumbling through. And he doesn't care. He'll walk through any battle and everyone will just stop and let him pass. Yeah. Because he's, he's so bold and he, he expects that people will stop. And so they do. And, and once again, he has no fight on either side. He's just there. He's not interested. He will take advantage of, of anyone if the moment demands it. Yeah. And there's an honor to that. Right? There Way. is. There is. There's an honor to taking advantage of people? Yeah. If you take advantage of all people equally. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a there's another thing that's they have in common. What do they both care about? The necklace. The necklace. And Let's talk he, about the necklace. Tay cares about the necklace because it's priceless to him. It's a totem. It's it's a reflection of the princess. And the, Kwong the, cares the, about the, the necklace because it's a rare and precious necklace. The necklace was given to Ching Tay right before he left the princess to go on his year-long his journey, translation yes. journey. Yes. She gave it, it's it's got a pair. There's two necklaces. That's the, the necklace has a sister. She keeps one necklace, he keeps the other. And that's one way for the princess to sort of symbolize that we are like bound mm-hmm. in this way. And at first, he doesn't really care that much about the necklace. Or he almost cares about the necklace more than he cares about the princess. Is that true? While he's there, he was like, he, I think there's a line where it's like he thought more about the necklace than the princess. Mm, okay. Um, not in like a greedy way, just like he was like, oh, but yeah, But it's the also necklace. like the necklace is the princess. The princess is the necklace. Yeah. So he's like, why do I have to go back to the, pr- the princess? I have the necklace here. <laughs> and so when things later happen, that necklace becomes the most important thing in the world to him. And uh, it turns out that Wang Li has the other half of that necklace. Um, and they both treasure it in this way. Now, later, Kuang sees Xing Tae with the necklace and is like, give it to me or I will kill you. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. And he's like, please. And he's like, no. And he's like, but I'm going to kill you. And he's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, fine, he's kill not, me. He's not afraid of losing his head. No. And he never has been. He'd rather lose his head than lose the necklace. Yes. And he will, and then I like Kuang's just like, well, I know this necklace has a sister to it. So I'll just look for the sister. But you better give me the sister necklace. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of becomes this re- reoccurring thing that whenever he sees Xing Tae later, he's just like, do you have the necklace? Because Kuang is interested in the necklace, it's Kuang's high and mighty family that built these caves. And it's only because he wants to put that necklace in there that our main character is able to put together the pieces of okay how can i trick this guy into thinking i'm going to give him what he wants from me in order to save these scrolls that i care about and get them in here and preserve them it's the the, probably the moment where he takes the most direct no other part in the book is he like actively trying to deceive people in a way Mm, yeah you're right he might try to brush him off like, he, he inherently lies to Kuang for most of it, just being like, 
no, I don't know where the other necklace is. He knows where the other necklace is, but he's not like... But he's protecting his friend. Yeah, he's not like actively trying to manipulate a situation until the ending where he's like, I need to save these scrolls, so I must manipulate Kwong to get these scrolls into his secret cave. And it must be said that as this this city on the frontier is hours, minutes away from being completely taken over, the people in charge of the city are locked in a debate Mm -hmm. they're just too busy trying to make points and give speeches to one another about who has who has the best plan for how we should respond to this that they do absolutely nothing and even though they've packed up all of their belongings that they're not able to save anything and they end up with absolutely nothing just the shirts on their back yeah and running for their lives that also reminded me of the beginning where he is his in his dream the the idea of this test is he has to sit in front of like he has to sit in front of the emperor and basically he has to be asked a question about a certain situation he has to sort of respond about how to handle it that really reminded me of the ending of how the bureaucrats while he everything was happening something. yeah yeah he freaking handles it but the but bureaucrats no are doing one... the exact same thing he did at the beginning which was just sit around and talk about it no one who succeeded on the examination succeeded in the real exam, which is life. Yeah. The other, my other favorite part is as the city's burning, um, Kwong enlists a bunch of people to help him, like pack things into the cave. <laughs> and he picks them off one by one. Oh, he he absolutely like at the end, like towards the end of Goodfellas, where Robert De Niro just kills it, everyone, and there's like a montage of all their deaths. And even Wang Li, who is unlike Kwong, is Singta's like true friend. Yes. He is totally blinded by his sexual jealousy mm-hmm. against this ruler yeah. that he's led on a suicidal assassination quest mm-hmm. that has absolutely no military significance. So like like well, every well, other person who's in a position to make a good choice makes a wrong choice and is motivated by the wrong things. And only sing to who's guided only by this kind of moment to moment freedom is is able to navigate like these churnings of history because it's this is a, a historical book and it's it's we're imagining ourselves well we don't know what no one knows like there's many projections about how these scrolls may have ended up there but this is his version of why that happened i love that idea and also made me think about like at first i was like oh Te is the person with the least amount of free will in the entire universe and then slowly as the book went on, I was like, oh, he's the person with the most, he's like the only person with any free will in mm-hmm. this world. Mm-hmm. But he maintains his freedom within himself. Yes. Despite any circumstance. And everyone else has to live it outside of Which themselves. Which is why he is the most mentally healthy person that ever lived. Well, let me throw out the, the ending then. Okay. I have a, a big topic about the ending, which is okay. in our last podcast about... John Giona's Melville, where the idea of an ideal reader mm. comes up a lot. Mm. And so I was thinking a bit about that when he's sort of doing all these translation of who is the ideal reader for Shinte and mm. his work. And it sort of goes between like, he's doing it for this Uyghur princess, he's doing it for this commander, yada, yada, yada. And in the end, his little, little chunk of work that he did on these sacred scrolls is all that is saved. He has it, I think, written... In Shisha, he has it written in Chinese and he has it written like a Buddhist text. So that's how it's sort of this Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. The ideal reader in and of that self is us today. We we are his ideal reader. Like sort of like um, 
Tim Marr brought up the idea that we are Melville's ideal reader because we read and appreciate him mm. today again, again, and again. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a fascinating sort of jump. I did also think about Melville, but more in the way of Giono completely projected his own worldview, his own like struggles and mm-hmm. desires onto Melville, maybe inappropriately. Definitely inappropriately. But like entertainingly. And th- this isn't really inappropriate, but he totally projects his own viewpoint onto this this mystery, this great historical mystery of like how do these scrolls end up in these caves? Yeah. But on the idea of the ideal reader, it seems to me like he doesn't, it's not about whether the caves were, fa- say the caves had been destroyed, you know, water broke through and they were all like ruined and like never found. I think he would have, still thought it was equally worth it to have done what he did because it was about the act. It was about just kind of sending it out to the world. It was about doing it for himself. And it was for, it wasn't for himself, but it was what he could control. Yeah. Whereas I think the Giono's Melville, not the real Melville, really wanted that validation (laughs) of a particular person. Yeah. Yeah. And most of us live on that much lower plane of existence. But this book aims for something much higher spiritually yeah. than anything going on in Giono's Melville. True. Or any other book ever. Or any book ever. This <laughs> this is the pinnacle. I want to talk about the epilogue because I thought it was an interesting... We had different opinions, didn't we? You didn't think it was that good. I liked the beginning of... Okay, so in the epilogue... I saw this as sort of a, what do they call it? The title cards at the end of a movie that say like, this guy went to jail. This guy made $5 billion. This guy was never heard from again. Like stuff like that. That was kind of, that was what happened yeah, in the bit. epilogue. I kind of wanted to be like slightly more novelistic literary rather than just like a recitation of facts. But it also leaves a lot out about... I think the kind of conversations we'd be having about how the this treasure trove of Buddhist texts was pillaged by Westerners. Yes. It and, just, it, and still continue to this day. It's like... It's stated very matter-of-factly. I think 30% of these documents are in China. So that means 70% are scattered around in the British Museum and in the French National Library. And I think there's some in Russia, which... Give them back. Par, par for the course. It's like pretty much everything in the British Museum is stolen, right? Oh, yeah. The light switches were like taken. <laughs> James Kelman was like, that was mine. <laughs> I liked the epilogue because it switched so strongly. And it I'll say this. To. It needed to. I'll say this. I honestly didn't think we were going to get an epilogue like that. I got mm. so wrapped in the story that I almost forgot what we were talking about in the end. I know. I, I know. was. I almost felt like Xing Te at this point, where it was like, all I got to do is save these documents. And I know the point was of this book was like to write about these documents, but then to have him go from this massive, like literally, I mean, this book is, as we said, very subdued. The final like five or ten pages are some of the most overwhelming and intense things I've ever read of the actual book pre-epilogue. Mm-hmm. It becomes very violent very intense, very emotional, huge struggle. And to have it then immediately switch to be the most theoretical, historical, I think 
made it both emphasize each other all the better. And I liked how it just sort of built to those final sentences of remembering and realizing just how important it was that meaningless things were preserved. Mm-hmm. But they, they did happen to be incredibly meaningful. Uh, yeah, but it the, the way they would have seen it back then was just like... But that wasn't, again, what is amazing about this is that someone else could have written, would have written an entirely different book. Yeah. And the point would have been, look at all this. It was, it was saved. It's so important to the scholars. Now it's important. We go back to the beginning and it's important to the people who take and give the imperial examination. Yeah. But this book is saying, no, it's not even about the fucking, it doesn't matter. I don't give a shit if this was important to scholars. It it brings the Xing Te idea. What's important is, is living in the moment. Yeah. Is following your your impulses, is being curious about the world, is being open to the people that you encounter in life and in doing act like doing things that are meaningful to you. The fall of eternity in the But that's of what create but he's saying it doesn't matter that this ended up that this became important historically. Mm-hmm. But it's the people who aren't trying to be important historically are the ones that actually are important. Mm-hmm. I I do want to say that I feel like we talked about a thousand different parts of this book and we barely covered half of it in its actuality. There's uh, life, death, eternity. Um, Having fun with the bros. Yeah. So much bro time in this book. <laughs> if you want bro time, come to this book. But this book is like less than 200 pages. So short. It yeah. is so light. It is like a feather as far as a book that should the way you and I talk about this book, it feels like it should be 874 pages. I know. Well, thank you, Dylan, for joining us. Really thank- appreciated having you on the show. Thank you for coming on It's an guest. honor to speak with you. I know you traveled a long way to come to this <laughs> recording, Cassia. That's our show. Thank you for tuning in to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. And join us again in two weeks when we discuss The Skin of Dreams by Raymond Kiono. Yeah, we're kicking off a series of episodes about translation which this both this and our last episode are also kind of beginning that series yeah Um, (laughs) so we're just continuing it actually yeah this is also the first new release nyrb classic we're going to touch on yeah so this this will be out i think five days after the uh the book the release date so order that book now 